Promethean song. A psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath Enoch, a mascal of Teman, the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ears to my cry. My soul is full of trouble. My life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose amongst the dead. Like the slain that lie in their graves. Like those who you remember no more. They are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depth of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy on me, and you overwhelm me with your waves. You've caused my friends to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call on you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning, my prayers come before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. And this last verse is really the one I want you to to look at closely. You have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. I want to talk to you a little bit today about what a wounded healer is. Henry Nowen wrote a book. Henry Nowen was a professor at both Yale and Harvard for 20 years. He left that and became a pastor in the Canadian church. Um, when he felt that, he you'd have to read the book to get it, but he, he just wasn't really feeling that he was fulfilling his role and that he was in need of something more to help others. He wrote a book, two books that I've read. One is called... The Wounded Healer, and the larger book is called A Living Reminder. And in the book, he says that most Christians, and in particular Christian leaders, are not prepared to be spiritual leaders for people who are really hurting. And he says, and this is a quote from Henry Nowen, he says, our service will not be perceived as authentic. You know what that means? That means real. Unless it comes from a heart that has been wounded by the suffering about which we speak. 
He says, nothing can be written about ministry without a deep understanding of the ways in which we, as ministers, can make our own wounds available to others as a source of healing. And hence comes the title of his book, The Wounded Healer. He talks about Christian leaders being wounded healers who serve others in Jesus' name. He wants to draw not only the hurt person, but the wounded healer closer to each other and closer to Jesus. And you may still be asking the question, what does it mean to be a wounded healer? Some of you have heard, perhaps, of the concept of, of Christ being a wounded healer for others. But do you really understand what that means? What does it mean to be a wounded healer? I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to be a needy or dysfunctional leader or helper. And it's not about caregiving for someone in which we switch roles with the people we're trying to help to have them help us. A wounded healer simply offers the hurts of their life to others who are hurting so they can find help and comfort and encouragement in theirs. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul said that we are to be the very comfort of Christ to each other. That we're to be friends to the hurting. The only way you can do that is come to a deep self-awareness of your own self before you try to become a servant of others that need healing. Henry Nowen's books, those two books I've mentioned to you, affected me deeply throughout my ministry. They particularly affected me <laughs> in 1985 when I first read them while at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. They've always stuck with me. I've always gotten them out for laying on my shelf, and there's certain reasons why I read them. Let's stop for a minute and talk about Mental Health Awareness Month, and then you'll see why I've gotten in these two passages today. Millions of people are affected by mental illness every year in the United States. People just like you and people just like me, people who laugh, have friends, do all kinds of things. The reason I know that is because statistically, they say 58 million people in the United States have experienced mental illness in the year before last. Five and a half percent of the United States population has experienced serious, serious mental illness. Sixteen and a half percent of youth ages six to 17 had a health disorder, and that was back in the year 2016. And 8% of United States adults have experienced both a substance abuse problem and a mental, mental illness. That means 19 and a half million people in the year before last. And you might say this morning as you're sitting here, but yeah, Joel, that doesn't apply to me. Now, before you say that, I want to say this to you. We lie the most about this subject. And we in the church really lie about it. Sometimes we want to write it off because the person doesn't have the right level of spirituality. Sometimes we just don't want to talk about it because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Somebody, often ourselves, 
but certainly someone in our lives who we love deals with the issue, but it goes unspoken. And the, the problem with that is that it spreads out. It doesn't, doesn't affect the individual. It affects every relationship in their life. There is, if you would, a ripple effect. If somebody has just simple garden variety depression, they have a 40% higher chance of having heart problems. If you deal with mental illness, you have a 34% 34% higher chance of abusing drugs. Unemployment is higher for people with mental illness. High school students who get mental illness drop out of school more than their colleagues. And kids in elementary school that deal with an emotional or a mental disorder wind up flunking out at least three times on their trip through school. Worst case scenario, somebody reaches a place where they begin to think of hurting themselves in a very bad way. You might be surprised to hear what I'm about to say to you, but I want to share it with you. The 12th leading cause of death in the United States is suicide, but here's the one that will shock you. Suicide is the second leading cause of death amongst people aged 10 to 14. It's the third leading cause of death amongst people aged 15 to 24. It's a real problem. 79% of those that die by suicide are men. Are you a wounded healer? You listen to the story this morning in 1 in, in Samuel, where we began. What you know is hopefully a familiar story. King David is sitting on the throne, and he wants to do a good thing. He, he wants to ask, how can I help somebody from the family of Saul? Now, just to put this into a context for you, King David was Saul's successor. King Saul was David's predecessor. And if you know the story very well, you know that King Saul had tortured David as he reigned. King Saul couldn't stand David. David found himself in a cave. David found himself on the run. David found himself having to eat uh, food that wasn't supposed to be eaten. It was dedicated to God. David found himself having to do a lot of things he wouldn't do. But we often read the story with our eye on David and we fail to look where he ought to be looking and that is at the demons that King Saul dealt with. King Saul had some real problems. Now David, please get the story right because <laughs> I often paint this with a, with a rose-colored set of glasses. David was one tough cookie. David killed a lot of people as a man of war. So much so that when he uh, ascended the throne and wanted to build a house for God, he had to leave that to his children because God said he had killed too many people. So David had his own set of issues, but King Saul seemed to have one that just ruled his life. And now King Saul's dead. 
And David has ascended to the throne. And it would seem to me that the normal behavior of someone would be, even though he was dead, I can't trust anybody connected to him, particularly direct blood. But David asks for that. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? And his reason for asking that is, is he had made a covenant with Jonathan, King Saul's son. And David says, is there any children left of King Saul so that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He's saying, I love Jonathan like a brother. I covenanted with him. Even though he was my archenemy's son, I cared for him deeply and I made a promise to him and he made one to me. And when my hour was difficult, he came and helped me. And now that he's gone, I want to show kindness to his family. And they came and they, they told David, there is one son left. And that son's name is Mephibosheth. Now you got to know that when his grandfather Saul and his father Jonathan died, Mephibosheth was probably like four, three, just a little boy. And when they died, his caretaker picks him up and takes off running with him. And the scripture says he dropped him on his head. And from that point on, Mephibosheth couldn't walk. And here's David and he's saying, is there anybody left? of Jonathan's family, of King Saul's family. And they say there is one, there's this, this boy named Mephibosheth, but he's crippled in his feet. And the king said, where is he? And ultimately the king had him brought back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, and Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came to David. And I know I, I, I told you this one time not long ago in a sermon. When, when Mephibosheth comes, now, they didn't have wheelchairs. Somebody carried him in. But when they, when they brought him in, they put him down on the ground. And Mephibosheth, who would have been able to sit upright, probably rolled over to the best we can tell and put himself at the lowest point on the ground that he could because context is everything. We know from the first verse that David said, is there anybody left so that I can show kindness for the sake of Jonathan? But Mephibosheth didn't know that. He didn't have that context. He was out somewhere else in another place. And when they bring Mephibosheth there, Mephibosheth thinks, my time's come. This is game over. David says to him, don't fear. I am going to show you kindness. For the sake of your father Jonathan, and I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you will eat at my table always. David goes on, and he not only has Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth sit at his table, he gives to Mephibosheth all of the land that his father owned. Mephibosheth says, who am I that you would pay homage to me? What am I? that you would show regard to me who is the equivalent of a dead dog. The king says, go and get his house ready. He says to Ziba, his servant, go, and you and your family will till the ground, and your, your, your Mephibosheth, he will eat from that ground, but he will always sit at my table, and he will always be honored in my house. So it says Mephibosheth did sit at the king's table and he was as if he was one of the king's guests. 
Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Zimri's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. He ate always at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Can I tell you something about Mephibosheth before we go any further? Mephibosheth was, first off, unable to walk on his own. That made him helpless. Mephibosheth was, as the ex-king's son, sort of like Prince Harry. He just wanted to hide out in the closet somewhere where nobody would see him, you know. Show up for the coronation because it's blood, but be sure you get back to the wife and children quick in Los Angeles because the fact is, you're persona non grata. <laughs> and worse than anything, as somebody who was crippled, Mephibosheth was dying slowly. Now, you may not see this, what I want you to see is that Mephibosheth is just how David was way back when. David was on the run. David was hiding in caves. David was seeking shelter. David had nothing to eat. David was hopeless. In fact, David was rejected and helpless and for all intents and purposes, dying a slow death. He understood what it meant to be hopeless. He understood what it meant to be hurting. He understood what it meant to be rejected and helpless and to feel like you're dying. You know what David did? He moved first. He stuck to his promise to Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father. He was kind. He personally reached out. He was accepting. He was peaceful and he was protective of Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. He did all the right things that he should have done. But what I want you to see more than anything is he did it out of the background of having been there himself at some point in time. In this story, Mephibosheth is hopeless and David is powerful and graceful. And friends, I believe that many people today go through a cycle. Sometimes you're on the top of the world and sometimes you're in the valley below. But when you're on the mountain up here, it is the duty of the Christian to reach down and help somebody else. It's the duty of we who know the name of Jesus to help those around us. When life is empty, God is always full. And what that means is when you're in the valley, it's also a time to reach out to those around you, around you that can help you. If you were to go back and look at that Psalm 88, and I'm going to do this and I'm going to regret it when I do it, but I want you to read one verse in that Psalm 88 that I did not read to you. I don't know if I can do this or not, but it's the very last verse. You have caused my beloved and my friend to slumber. My companions have become darkness. 
I want you to look at that verse for a minute. Because if you go back and read all of Psalm 88 as we read it today, you will know that whoever wrote this psalm felt that they didn't have a hope in the world. My companion has become darkness. Those I love and my friends have begun to shun me. He is really, really, really hurting. What he needed to learn was that when life is empty, God is full. How many of you drive an electric car? Nobody drives an electric car. Aren't you thankful if you drive a gasoline engine that there's gas stations? Right? When they were building the first Teslas, that rich guy who's been in the news a lot lately, he built the most charging stations when he was starting out between his house and the factory. <laughs> you got to think about that for a minute. You'll get it. <laughs> That's where the first charging stations were, where he lived and where he was going to. Where do you go to when the tank is empty? And there's nowhere to go. I have a 36-foot-long cabin on wheels. It has an 80-gallon gas tank. Think about that for a minute. And I keep worrying about it because the fuel pump is in the tank and you can't get to the fuel pump any way other than to drop the tank down. And I'm getting ready to go somewhere in it and I wanted to change the fuel pump out because I'm worried it'll break down my trip because you know me, I'm a worrier. But I got to get rid of the 80 gallons of gas before I can drop the tank. All of you said we'll be over in the afternoon, right? <laughs> You can't lower it with the gas in it. I was telling this dilemma to my wife, Janice, and you know what she told me? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> so we're going with that. But sometimes, sometimes in our gas tank, we fill up here, we fill up here, we empty a little out over here. We empty out a little over there and over here. And one day we turn around and look. And we've so drained ourselves that there's nothing left to give. And we are broke. And we can't seem to find someone to fix us. Did you ever notice in Jesus' life, the people he hung around? Tax collectors and sinners. A lady who had an alabaster box of very expensive ointment and a very shady history. A guy who Jesus knew when he met him was going to betray him one day. People who would look at him and say, we're with you, but they didn't believe a word he said. People with past. People with a lot of discouragement and unloved people hung around Jesus. And isn't it strange 
that in the middle of the 23rd Psalm, there was written this little sentence. Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of my enemies. In the midst of the unloved, the shady, the hurts of life, the difficulties, and all of the emptying of the gas tank to try to help fill someone else's, God prepares a table before us. In fact, the psalmist would say it this way, because the Lord is my shepherd, I will never want. He makes me lie down in green pastures even when all I see are cloudy skies. He leads me beside still waters even when the truth is the rivers ravaging around me. He restores my soul when I can't even tell for sure if I have one. He leads me in the paths of unrighteousness for his name's sake, even though I walk in the midst of unrighteousness. And even when I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I need not be afraid because he'll walk there with me. And when I need correction, he'll bring his rod. And when I need protection, he'll bring his staff. And when I am hurting at my deepest, he will comfort me. My enemies seem to be all around me. You will lay out a spread for me. You have anointed my head with oil, and my cup will always overflow. And in spite of this emptiness, goodness and mercy will follow me every day of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Church, here's my very simple bottom line. When life is empty, God is full. When you find yourself hurting because you've been amongst those that are difficult to love, when you find yourself hurting because you've been misunderstood, when you find yourself hurting because someone's betrayed you, when you find yourself hurting because of religious hypocrites or unbelievers, when you find yourself hurting because people have a past and they try to come and drag you down with them, when you, you come amongst believers, who aren't much better than the unbelievers when you live amongst the discouraged and the weak and the powerful and the strong, when you find yourself both loved and hated, in all things, remember this. When life is empty, God is full. I want to go back. you three things. Millions of people every year are discouraged with mental health issues. Some of us here today are wrestling with those issues. But some of us have and we found our way out and God has called us to be wounded healers. To be people who are willing to realize that the hurt that we've had, like David, when he was in the cave being chased by Saul, like David, when he had to run out of town because he had nowhere else to go, like David, when there was nothing to eat, and he had to eat from the priests offering their bread, the holy bread, like David, who one day got better and one day was able to pen the 23rd Psalm, who was one day able to say, the Lord is my shepherd and therefore I will not want when we get to that place, it's our time to take our own woundedness and put it into action to be the healer. 
Because at the end of the day, what sin does to us is it hurts us. It destroys us. It wants to kill us. And what Jesus did when he hung on the cross was take that for us. He experienced what we were experiencing. And now he comes along and says, I have a better way. And we find that when we ask for forgiveness, when we surrender to him, place our faith and our trust in him, not because the depression or the hurt or all that stuff is going to go away, but because when it does come, as the wounded healer of all healers, he'll come along and go with us and carry us through. Amen. We're going to sing together.